Well, good morning again and welcome again. Today we are going to be continuing our uh, discussion of Romans 9 to 11. This kind of challenging but really wonderful section of Paul's letter to the Roman church. And if you weren't here last week, we began this by looking at part one. And so if you haven't watched that message yet, I'd encourage you to do that first. Because we looked at kind of the big picture interpretation of this passage, and we talked about really the biggest theme of the passage. And so if you haven't watched that yet, you're missing some of the major context from this passage, and and this message won't make as much sense. And really, you'll be missing, uh, I think, the most important thing about this passage. So watch that first, if you haven't already. But if you are still here and you watched last week's message, uh, let me just briefly recap what we talked about. Paul is addressing the question of God's plan when it comes to Israel, his chosen people in the Old Testament. And last week we talked about this idea that God's promise to Israel hasn't failed. God always has been and always will be a God inviting his people both Jew and Gentile, to turn to him in faith. He hasn't rejected Israel. And so big picture, this passage is really about the faithful character of God. But at the same time, we cannot miss what Paul has to say about the character of God's people. See, Paul isn't writing just abstract theology here. He's not writing a textbook for Christians to read in their Christianity 101 class. And he's not even, believe it or not, he's not writing this letter so pastors thousands of years later can have things to talk about on Sunday mornings. Instead, Paul is writing to a specific group of people with specific problems. And the Romans in particular are struggling with the issue of unity and peace within the family of God. Now, as any parent knows, one of the most frustrating and disappointing things is having your children fight. My kids, Kaya and Gray, they actually get along really well. They love each other, and I'm so happy with the relationship that they've developed. But at the same time, they still fight, and they fight all the time. They fight over who gets to go first. They disagree over what they're going to play with. They have long conversations and disagreements about how long Kaya gets to play by herself in her room before Grayson gets to come back in and bother her or annoy her some more. Probably the most frustrating or annoying disagreement is over what we eat. I don't know why, but for some reason, Kaya and Gray over the years have just kind of implicitly decided that they're always, no matter what, going to disagree over what they want for dinner if we have fast food. So if Gray feels like Chick-fil-A, Kaya wants McDonald's. If Kaya's in the mood for KFC, Gray wants Taco Bell. If Kaya then says, okay, actually, Taco Bell sounds pretty good, Gray will say, you know what, actually, I think I want McDonald's. And if both kids want In-N-Out, well, too bad. you got to choose something better. 
I'm just kidding. They, they never choose in and out But, you know, as annoying as these things are, and as much as it's kind of a hassle, it's really no big deal. The disagreements that really matter are the bigger ones, the ones that leave someone feeling hurt, unloved, left out. These have the potential to create lasting damage in the relationship. And so as a parent, these are the ones that have to be resolved. They have to be talked about and worked out. And in the Roman church, and in many other churches in the New Testament era, one of the defining issues was a family conflict, a serious conflict that needed to be addressed, that had the potential for lasting damage. And this conflict arose between, essentially, the two siblings in the early church. Two different groups, both of them children of God, but coming from very different places and wanting different things. And as you might guess, these two groups are the ones that we've been discussing so far in Romans chapters 9 to 11, the Jews and the Gentiles. And at the heart of their differences, at the heart of this conflict was a question. Whose story matters? Whose narrative for faith was going to take the position of honor and precedence in the family of God? And to understand these questions, we need to dive into a little bit of background from this church. And Romans had kind of an interesting story. In the early years of the church, as the gospel spread, it began in the Jewish synagogues. The gospel of the Messiah was preached first to the Jews, and this is where the church began. But at some point, a Roman persecution of Jews began, and so Jews had to leave Rome. And this created a vacuum for non-Jews, or Gentiles, to become the focus of the church's missionary efforts. Now, eventually, the Jews would return, and the church became a mix of two very different groups. Jews and Gentiles were different in terms of how they viewed life, faith, community, and church practice. The Jews valued things like Torah observance, dietary laws, religious holy days, circumcision, and they believed that the ministry of the church was a continuation of what God had been doing all along. Many of them had experienced a relationship with Yahweh since the time they were little boys or little girls. They had past experiences of meeting with God, experiencing intimacy with him through things like Torah, the synagogue, their Jewish friends and family. But at the same time, you have this other group. You have the Gentile Christians who had grown up in the pagan Roman world. They had never known the God of Israel. And they had no background with the law or the prophets or God working in the life of Moses and David and Elijah. Instead, they had experienced the gospel only as this gospel of grace, this message of Jesus, this freedom from the burden of polytheistic Roman religion. 
Now, to make things more chaotic, they were so, there were social dynamics as well. The Gentiles were largely wealthier, more successful, more accepted within the larger society. And so they were the financial driving force behind the ministry of the church. And the Jews were more likely to be poorer, to be struggling. They had a lower status within the society at large. And so these dynamics led to a church that was fraught with disunity and judgment. Because you had these two very different groups, two distinct groups, and each of them thought, we are the group that matters. It's our story that matters. We have an inside track to the heart of God, to who he really wants us to be, to what he really wants the church to look like. And our narrative, how we do things, should define the church. The Jews clung to their Torah observance, to the law, to these rituals, and they looked down on their Gentile brothers and sisters and said, hey, if you really want to know God, if you really want to experience him and do life with him, then you have to do faith like us. Because you are joining our thing. So you should do things our way. They use their history and their heritage to try to assert their dominance. On the other hand, the Gentiles look down on the Jews in their rigid ways. It seems as if they may have been using their influence and their money and their power to marginalize the Jewish Christians. And they looked at them and they thought, you know, if you want to know this God of grace that we know, then you have to do things our way. You have to get rid of those old, outdated ways. If you want grace, you can't do anything from the law. So each group looked at the other and said, this is what matters to God. This is true faith. And so Romans 9 to 11, these three chapters, it's not just a story about God. It's a story of peace for God's people. A story meant to remind Jews that Gentiles were always a part of God's plan. That God's people was about more than just membership in a certain ethnic group or membership in Jewish law and culture. It's a story meant to remind Gentiles that Jews were the first to experience God's presence and promise and that he hadn't rejected them, that he hadn't tossed them aside. And so in chapter 11, Paul uses a metaphor to bring these two groups together, to help them recognize the nature of their relationship with each other and what it should and shouldn't look like. And this is a metaphor that's a little bit difficult for us to understand, and this passage is pretty complex. There's a lot going on here. But this metaphor, which would have been meaningful for these people, of an olive tree, tells us a lot about what the growing church and what our church is supposed to look like. So let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 13. Paul says, I am talking to you, Gentiles. 
Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, the Jews, to envy and save some of them. Skipping down to verse 17, here he opens up this metaphor. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, unless you are a farmer or have a lot of experience with olive trees, uh, you probably don't know much about olive trees. And I don't either. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this. But there are two clear points that we see in this passage. First, you are joined to the root by faith. So don't be proud. I think this part of the metaphor is pretty clear. You have two types of branches. You have the natural, cultivated olive branches that have grown on the tree since the beginning. Some of them have fallen off, but others still remain. This is a clear reference to Israel. But you also have wild branches from a different root that have been grafted on to this tree. And they're placed there to grow with it and to become part of the tree. These are the Gentiles. The identity of the root isn't clearly stated, but given the context of the passage, it seems likely to be a reference to God's covenant promise, to his grace. And so what Paul says clearly here is that the branches placed place on the tree is not about whether you are natural or wild. It's about faith. Your connection to the tree has nothing to do with what group you belong to or what things you've done. What defines your place on the tree is faith. And so what does that mean? Verse 18, he says it clearly. Do not consider yourself to be superior to the other branches. He says, hey, don't be proud. Don't think your way is the best way or the only way. Don't think your story is more important than someone else's. And while he's addressing the Gentiles specifically in this passage, He's proclaimed the same message, message to the Jews. In chapters 9 and 10, which are largely directed at Jewish Christians, Paul basically says, hey, the Gentiles are here because God invited them, 
and they responded in faith. They belong here too. Paul is saying very clearly to both groups, you're not more important than the other. You, Israel, with the history, don't be proud or think that you're better because of where you came from. Because guess what? Your history didn't save you. Your heritage didn't save you. It's your faith that gave you this place on the tree. He looks at the Gentiles and says, hey, new guy, don't be proud. Don't think you're better than the Jews because you're here for the same reason that they are. Because of your faith in Jesus. And you could fall for the same reason they did if you fall to unbelief. So be wary of pride. But that's not all this metaphor shows us. Paul doesn't just tell us what it's not supposed to look like. He also shows us what community should look like, how these two different groups should relate to each other. And the second point from the passage is, you both bring vitality to the tree. Both of you are equally valuable in your contribution, and so you need each other. Now, here we get into some really interesting farming stuff here. And as I said, uh, I don't know this off the top of my head. I read about this, but I think it's really interesting. That in olive tree farming, it was common for a farmer to perform a grafting operation between two types of trees. Olive trees that grew in the wild were oftentimes very strong. They grew really well but they didn't produce good fruit. And so what a farmer would do is he would take the branches from a cultivated fruit-bearing tree and place it onto the root of a wild tree. So the cultivated branch would harness this growth power and energy from the wild tree. And the wild tree would now be fruitful because of the cultivated branch. Now, in our passage, Paul actually reverses the positions. The wild branch of the Gentiles is grafted onto the cultivated tree where Israel's branch had been growing. But the meaning is the same. That the wild and natural branches come together on this tree, and in doing so, they support each other and help each other grow. One brings a certain fruitfulness, the other life and energy and nutrients. And this is the larger picture Paul is building towards. And in other places in his letters, he uses different metaphors for this same idea. The body, the family, a building. All of these communicate the same foundational idea that you are one. You need each other. No one has more value and no one's story should diminish the others. It's together that you thrive. Now this metaphor and, and how Paul resolves this issue of unity and diversity in the first century church is so important for us to consider now. Because one of the most damaging things to the church today is an attitude of pride and superiority that can actually look a lot like 
the attitude of the first century Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's this belief that my way of doing faith, my way of seeing God and life, that this is the real way of knowing God. That I have an inside track to the heart of God and to what really matters to him. Let's imagine, just for a second, a small group gathering. Imagine three people sitting around a table talking about faith. The first is a middle-aged man, and we'll call him the theologian. As the group goes around and talks about faith, he takes every opportunity to talk about the importance of doctrine and truth of understanding the deeper points about who God is, how the gospel works. He points to various scriptures throughout the evening. And as he kind of finishes his sharing, he ends by holding up his Bible and he says, there is nothing more important than this, than reading this. The second member of the group is a young woman, and we'll call her the builder. She nods along as uh, the theologian shares, but as he finishes, she jumps in and says, you know, that's, that's great, but I see things a little differently. As valuable as reading the Bible can be, what really matters is restoration and justice. We have to get out there and restore this broken world to care for the poor and the broken, just like Jesus did, to bring justice to the marginalized and afflicted. See, that's what faith is really about. At this point in the conversation, the third member is now, now, now she seems a little bit agitated. She is the activist, and she politely disagrees. She says, I, I, I think you guys are missing the point a little bit. See, what God really cares about is holiness. We have to be focused on the real issue, the moral decay of our society, rising rates of sexuality, abortion, violence, to really value God's heart is to put our focus on these problems. This is the true mission of the church. After this, a discussion breaks out, and everyone is polite, but each grows more and more intense in their insistence that theirs is the right way. And as the conversation kind of builds to a climax. If you can imagine each person kind of in their frustration and in their passion, they all shout out at the same time, no, this is what really matters to God. How can you not see this? And as each person goes home that night, they all think to themselves, they just don't get it. If only they understood God's heart the way I do. Now, this is just one 
possible type of conversation that might take place. There are plenty of others about theology or practice or just what's important in life. But these types of conversations mirror the conflict between first century Jews and Gentiles in many ways. See, what's important to us is a reflection of who we are and where we come from, of our personalities, our backgrounds, our passions. And they reflect good things that are valuable and meaningful. They're usually things that have helped us to know God and to experience Him. They're things to be appreciated and pursued. The problem is not caring about these things. The problem is thinking that this must be the main thing. This must be the defining thing. That this must be the identity and the heart of the church. That this is what it means to know God and love Him. And I think even more important than that, they cannot be the point of entry for acceptance in the family of God. The theologian cannot say to the activist, I will think less of you if you don't care about doctrine the way I do. The builder cannot say to the theologian, I will not value your contribution to the church if you don't care for the poor the way I do. The activist can't say to the builder, I will not share my life with you completely if you don't share my perspective about the world around us. Now, I think we all know that we're different. And we all know that we're called to love one another in spite of those differences. Most of us have heard the body of Christ metaphor over and over and over again. And yet, I think in many ways the message hasn't fully sunk in. I think for many of us there are certain conditions to genuine love, to full acceptance, to our respect. I think there can be a desire for our thing or my thing to sit at the head of the table for my story to be what this church is about. Now, just a few caveats before we continue. This doesn't make every kind of behavior and every perspective equally valid. There is a time and a place to call out sinful behavior, false teaching, or spiritual idleness when we see it in our brothers and sisters. This isn't just a free-for-all where everything is okay. And on top of that, it's not a bad thing to share our heart and our passions, to talk about what's important to us and encourage others to think about faith in new and fresh and vibrant ways. I'm more of a theologian type by nature. And when I first started ministry, really all I wanted to do was study my Bible and talk about theology. And it's been with the help of others who are different from me, who have shared their perspective, that I've grown. 
and come to appreciate these different perspectives. But the point is that there are, there, there are all these areas where we are different. And the mistake is to say that my thing matters most, that this is what it means to be a mature Christian, and this is how you gain my love and respect. And this passage and this metaphor remind us of what is actually essential to our unity. What binds us to this root, what makes us the same in spite of all of our differences, is faith. It's our shared commitment to Jesus and our life in the Spirit. This commitment to Jesus as King, to loving Him, to following Him, to doing life with Him, under Him, for Him, and to living Spirit-filled lives. In many ways, what Paul wants his readers to see in Romans 9 to 11 as he weaves his way through history is how God has worked throughout history to create one unified people, not connected by ethnicity or shared history, but by a genuine love for God and trust in his promises. That for as different as we are, that God brought us together to find common purpose and common joy in loving God and trusting him more than anything else. And the ways that we're different aren't supposed to be competing ways to do church. They're not supposed to make us weaker or more divided or more argumentative. The ways that we are different are supposed to make us stronger as we embrace the value of each person's story and as we nourish each other, as we share life and vitality and fruitfulness, that we grow together and become better. See, the theologian can learn about who God is from the activist. The builder can become more effective by studying with the theologian. The young can learn from the old and vice versa. Liberals can learn from conservatives and vice versa. Basketball families can learn from non-basketball families and vice versa and on and on and on. But all this only works when we recognize the common story. When we are defined not by what makes us a branch, but what makes us part of the tree. At the end of the day, what must be central to our identity as the people of God must be faith, this deep, resolute commitment to Jesus. That that is the first story that we tell about ourselves, that we tell about who we are and what our faith really is. Last summer, uh, some of you may remember, I gave kind of a controversial message. I talked about race and racism and touched on some of the issues in our political landscape. And that was a difficult message to give. And what I remember most about that message and the response to it wasn't the people who agreed with me, although I appreciated uh, the encouragement. 
It was those of you who disagreed and did it well. The week after the message, someone in the congregation emailed me and, and just said he wanted to talk. And this is somebody who I really respect, and so I was nervous. And just naturally, I, I, as the, the day approached, I began to feel more and more defensive. I started to think about what I might say, how I might respond to certain things, how I might convince the person that my perspective was right. Finally, the day came. We connected via Zoom and you know, said hello, exchanged some basic pleasantries, chit-chatted for a little while. But as we began to approach the topic that we had met to talk about, he stopped the conversation and he said something to the effect of, hey, before we get into any of this, I just, I just want to say that you are my brother. And I know how much you love God and love this church. And I just want to make sure we start there. And I'll just tell you, in that moment, it was like everything shifted. The walls came down. My pride and my defensiveness began to kind of melt away. And I remember, yeah, we are brothers. We are on this route together. And you know, we still disagreed about a lot of things. We didn't see eye to eye on several issues. But we had a really good conversation. We were able to share where we were coming from, and I learned a lot about him and from him. We were also able to talk about things that we shared in common, things that we both wanted to see. And in those areas where we differed, we could simply appreciate that we're different. And I remember in that moment thinking this, and I might have even said it to him because I was so, I was so pumped. But I remember thinking like, man, this is church. This is what it's supposed to be right here. Because on that day, as branches, we were very different. But we spent time on the route. And it was good. And I really think that this is what we are called to do in community. Especially as things in the world become more and more fractured, more and more divided. You know, we're beginning to think about what things will be like when we come back together. When we're able to meet together in person, as a church, once again, that's something that might be happening in the next couple months. But as we do that, as we come back together, we're coming from a world that has changed so much in the past year. We've become more and more divided, more and more defined by our differences. It's so easy now to go through life and look at people and ask, are they my kind of person? Or are they one of those people? Do they care about what I care about? Do they see the world the way I do? 
where are they on this issue or that issue? Are they in or are they out? I think we're so much more aware of all the ways that we're different. And if we're not careful, and if we bring that same attitude, those same questions back with us, man, it could tear the church apart. It could destroy community. More than ever, it is so important that we recognize what is the same. That we recognize what it is that binds us together as a tree, as a family, as a body. That as important as who we are is, as important as our different perspectives are, the reason we gather together is because we love Jesus. Because we're committed to living for him to living for his purpose, to loving him with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength. And even though we are different and we can appreciate those differences, we have to do life on the root first. Life in terms of what is shared. And to enjoy that, to take pride in that, to grow in our love for each other because of that. And it's from that place that we can be different branches and strengthen each other and become the fruitful and vibrant tree that God has called us to be. Let's pray. God, we know that we are facing enormous challenges as your church. That to be light and blessing, to live for you, it's hard. And we need to recognize that it is so much harder if we don't do it together if we don't do it as a united family. If we become defined by what is different rather than what is the same. God, I pray that you would make us humble to recognize that who we are is important, but that other perspectives matter as well that we would be strengthened by each other. God, I pray that we would listen to others. I pray that you would help us to grow in love, even for those who are vastly different. So God, continue to draw us into this story of faith that as we go deeper into our love for you, 
that this common experience on the root would become more real to each one of us. God, I pray for our church and for our people, for those who are watching and those who are not, that we would be filled with love and compassion and patience. God, we love you and we look to you to grow this church. We love you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.